1: If, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Ross Gilbert, and I'm the the lead pastor here, and we're excited to have you join us this morning <clears throat> for a, for a new series really, in what we're about to to get to in our study through the book of Ephesians. To start, I thought this would be an appropriate way to begin. I want to read from a, from a book called "Love and War" by John and Stacey Eldridge. And they open up this way. They say, "Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the presence of God to witness the joining together this man and this woman in holy matrimony the bond and covenant of marriage was established by god in creation and our lord jesus christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in cana of galilee and so the ceremony begins it's a ritual ancient as time and young as hearts of the man and woman standing before us these brides and grooms look younger every year john is officiating bride and groom are dear friends. They are in love. We, their family and friends, are here to support them, celebrate them, all dressed up in our Sunday best. The church is glowing with candlelight. The flowers are so lovely. The groom looks terrified but happy. The bride is nervous and radiant. Suddenly, I wonder, did I sit on the proper side? Was the bride's side on the left, the groom's side on the right, or the other way around? The bridesmaids are stunning. Oh, dear, they won't be wearing those dresses again. John continues, The union of husband and wife and heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy. He looks so handsome in a suit and tie. I remember how he looked on our wedding day in that fabulous black tux with tails. I hope he asked me to dance at the reception. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately in accordance with purposes for which was instituted by God. The liturgy begins to settle in, the church quiets, the coughing subsides, people are paying attention. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? No matter how many weddings I attend, there is something inexplicably stirring about all this. The ceremony, the making of vows, the great cloud of witnesses, something about this remarkable act feels, how does one describe it? Mythic. Daniel and Megan, you are about to abandon yourselves to each other, throw caution to the wind, forsake independence, isolation, all others. You will vow to each other your undying love. Before you do this, we must call it what it is, perfect madness. That got the crowd's attention. As an aspiration, how lovely. As a reality, how rare. Everyone wants love. Everyone is looking for love. Few seem to find what they're looking for. Fewer still seem to be able to sustain it. Why in heaven's name would you come to church to publicly dedicate yourselves to something so risky, so fraught with danger, and so scandalous? We're about to, to begin a study in, in this this passage now of where we are in Ephesians 5 on marriage. And we're going we're gonna to camp out here for a number of weeks because there's really so much that we can begin to unpack here and, and look at. And it's interesting, as I thought about this, that only now can Paul actually begin to address the topic of, of marriage. That he spent the first almost five full chapters kind of laying the groundwork of, of our identity in Christ and who we are and how we can now live and relate to one another in light of all that. And so understanding that that change and what God's done on the cross really is what enables Paul now to address this issue of marriage that he's going to talk about now over these next 11 verses. And, and Paul gives really, I think, his best counsel on marriage anywhere in, in scriptures. And, and quite frankly, I think it's simple, but far from simplistic, meaning the concept of it is simple. But it's not easy to pull off. In the same way, it's 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 the Christian life is simple. It's trust Jesus, but it's not easy to do. Now I, I recognize that there are some of you here, or some of you watching online, that are single and wondering, "Great, another you know x number of weeks on marriage." Uh, I'm not sure I want to tune in for this, but I, I, I do believe there is something for you as well here. For those of you who are hoping to get married, that maybe you'll be able to find uh, to an understanding of what to look for in a spouse, what to look for in someone uh, to marry. But also it might give you some understanding as to your married friends about why they are now the way they are after their marriage and and how they, they move forward. But I think it's important for us to stress a point that just because someone's married doesn't make them more complete than someone who's single. And I think that's been often, you know, thought of or or communicated within the church, this idea that somehow being single is less than the ultimate prize, the ultimate goal, which is marriage. And the reality is singleness is completeness. Paul says this in Colossians 2 and verse 9. He says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and all authority. Please understand, completeness is in Jesus. It's not in a spouse. It's not in a purpose, person other than Jesus Christ himself. And so you don't need to marry someone to somehow be now complete. Now, let me let me start by saying that that marriage and what it can be is so much more than just a roommate with benefits. It, it, it's so much greater than that. It's, it can be a partner, someone to share your dreams with, someone to raise uh, have children and raise a family with, a, a confidant. Again, I like how John and Stacy put it in their book. They say this, they say about marriage, that you have been entrusted with the heart of another human being. Whatever else your life's great mission will entail, loving and defending this heart next to you is part of your great quest. Marriage is the privilege and the honor of living as close to the heart as two people can get. No one else in all the world has the opportunity to know each other more intimately than do a husband and a wife. We are invited into their secret lives, their truest selves. We come to know their nuances, their particular tastes, what they think is funny, what drives them crazy. We are entrusted with their hopes and dreams, their wounds and their fears. See, it's... it's, it's really important for us to understand that that marriage is more than just two people coming to live together. That marriage is this this covenant, this commitment that people are making, a promise between a man and a woman. But it's also the hardest relationship in the world. The hardest human relationship. Because think about it, when when God talks about marriage, about a man and a wife, and they coming together and they become one. Think about the math of that. One plus one, equals one. That's bad math. That's that's an invitation to conflict. Because what's happening is you have these two individuals coming together, but they don't come just themselves. They come with all their, their baggage, all their hurts, all their shame, all their vulnerabilities, all their expectations. And they're losing some independence now as they join themselves to someone else. And, and the result of that, just by sheer proximity, the person that will hurt you the most over your lifetime is going to be your spouse. I mean, think about it. The, the person that I've hurt the most is the one I love the most, and that's joy. And the person that she's hurt the most is me. And, and it's not because it's, it's been intentional, but think about it as a dance. When you have two people who are dancing together in in such close proximity, they're they're bound to step on people's toes, especially when you've got someone, you're dancing with me. And so it's just, it's inevitable to happen. And so I think that's probably why Paul said it was a bit of a gift to be single. But please understand, Paul's not against marriage as many have thought. He's he's very much for it, I think, as this passage is going to show us. But let's let's think about the statistics of this a little bit. Worldwide, half of all marriages fail. In Canada, that number is closer to 40%, which is a little encouraging compared to the rest of the world. But 40% divorce rate is not very encouraging at all. Now, is a something to look out for for you single people? Occupations with the highest divorce rate, gaming managers, bartenders, flight attendants are all over 50%. Not to, not to profile or judge anyone, but is anyone surprised that gaming managers are at the top? Um, any guesses on who's the lowest? Pastors came in second lowest. You know who came in lowest? This is, I, I got a kick out of this one. Actuarius. actuaries. sorry. The, the people who do math. Right? So basically, they've done that. They've run the numbers. It's just not worth divorce just doesn't make sense. So, so Susan and Craig, you guys got the best odds. So, And if anyone's thinking about betting on them, you're in trouble. Some common reasons, though, why marriages struggle, and in, in no particular order, uh, but some of these reasons would be infidelity, finances, uh, in-laws, uh, differences in approaches to parenting, selfishness, Sexual dysfunction, broken trust, and the, the, the resulting need for control, bitterness, and lack of acceptance. Notice that lack of communication doesn't make this list. And yet, that seems to be the most common answer that people give when they talk about their marriage is struggling. But the reality is that lack of communication is a symptom of a deeper problem, and it's not the cause. Now, let me share to you why, why I think I am qualified to speak on this topic. My experience with marriage is personal. Uh, I'll, Joy and I will be married for 25 years in May of 2028. <laughs> it sounds more impressive that way, doesn't it? Now, if you're doing the math in your head, then this May we'll be married for 18 years. And uh, we've been through a lot together. We've We've lived in different countries. Uh, you know joys come through uh, from a, from a Latin country into this cold Arctic called Canada. We've been through uh, her she's had significant mental health issues, and so that crisis is is always uh, fun to live with. And we have five beautiful, incredible children that just adds an extra level of difficulty, I think, on on any marriage. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with those kids, just just having kids adds a a whole complexity to it. (laughs) Sorry? I can't keep going. So so if you want to know what kind of a husband I am, feel free to ask Joy. I've tried to be really good this week, knowing that that might be the question. But my experience is more than just personal. The last 16 years I've been counseling and I've, I've met with countless couples and individuals uh, regarding the struggles they've had in their marriage. And I've been able to help people and deal with people with those list of struggles they've had. In addition to reading countless books and listening to various messages and, and, and training on the topic of marriage and how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife and how to have a healthy relationship. Some better than others. And I think those credentials are important because it shows to you that my experience is not just theoretical, that I'm not, I'm not trying to speak to you from an ivory tower where everything is wonderful and everything's great and there are no, no struggles, so to speak. But really, those credentials are secondary because there's another person's credentials that I think we need to recognize, and they're not mine, they're God's. And his credentials is, is God is the creator. He's the creator of people both male and female, but he's also the creator of marriages, meaning he's all-knowing. He's the expert. He's the only expert. He, He understands how they're meant to function and how they operate. And finally, God is loving, which means that whatever he is saying to us, it's because he wants our best. He knows what he's saying, which means that we should listen to him. And yet many argue that they somehow know better than God. And, and don't act surprised by that statement or even think it's about someone else because each of us have moments where we think we know better than God every time we turn and listen to the flesh. But I think this is especially the case on this topic of marriage. I hear people say that, well, we, we live now in this 21st century. It's a, it's a new age and so much has changed and, and that out-of-date advice is no longer necessary and required. Except when we think about those older marriages, those old-fashioned ones, they seem to have a far greater success rate than the more current generations do. Now, I think part of our problem is that when we think about what the Bible says about marriage, we're, we're saddled with so much of our religious baggage. We're saddled with so many of the things that we bring to these verses that when we read these verses, we don't seem to understand them, and they get our back up. And we become defensive and we, we want to just dismiss them and move forward in life. So my hope over these next few weeks is, is as we study these verses, not just in this Ephesians passage, but hopefully begin to address some of the, the more controversial passages, the ones that people do get their back up against, we could really understand what is it that God's saying? What is he inviting us to? What is he, what is he trying to teach us about how we relate to one another? But as we begin this series, there's some things I need you to know, or I want you to know. Number one, no marriage is perfect. None. That every marriage is is still a work in progress. And that's good news, because no marriage is therefore locked in concrete. It's always changing, and therefore it's always capable of getting better. Think about like a garden. You know, a garden it needs to be cared for. It, it needs to be weeded from time to time, the new seeds planted and and it needs to be have protection from the outside predators and maybe some pruning from here and and uh, here and there. But the result of all that hard work is something beautiful. Maybe it's beautiful flowers, something to look at, but maybe also some fruit and vegetables that are nourishing and healthy and good. and And that can be marriage for us. But too often, the marriage we have is the one we get by default. We kind of just let it happen. And it's sort of like that garden that you don't tend to, and so the weeds begin to sprout up, and they could be, begin to choke out and even overtake some of the the, other, the fruit and the flowers. And so we need to be intentional with the kind of marriage that we want to create, the kind of marriage we want. But it's never, and I mean never, too late to start. It doesn't matter what lies in your past. It doesn't matter what you've been through. And here's why I say that. Because Jesus can fix anything. And I recognize that that some of you, even in this room and some of you online, you have been through a lot. You've been through stuff that has broken other marriages. But I want you to know that if, if two people are willing, Jesus can fix it. Jesus can, can restore, and to, to borrow a popular phrase, could even build back better your marriage. And I think that's what this passage in Ephesians is teaching us. It's giving us the blueprint or the design that God has for marriage. So, so let's read our passage. That's, that's our introduction, by the way, guys. Um, but let's read our passage. So Ephesians 5, beginning verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but as as every, as every the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Oh, Lord, help me. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we are walking through a minefield right now. Because this is a passage that has caused all kinds of hurt and all kinds of turmoil and all kinds of pain. Because people, some well-meaning and some not so, have distorted this passage. And that is not my heart. And I am very, very aware of that, Father. So I'm asking you and your Holy Spirit to be the teacher, even more so today than other times that we would be able to understand what is it your heart what is it your desire is for marriage and that the freedom that that will bring in your name we pray amen well let's start at the beginning right let's start with the very first ma- marriage and and I want to start I almost said marriage <laughs> almost but I didn't say it right we all we all can agree I didn't say it so I want to start with the first marriage, but I want to go back to even before Adam and Eve were Adam and Eve. Because, see, that wasn't their initial name. When we when we first meet them, man and wife, or male and female, we meet them as Ish and Isha. That's the Hebrew words there. And they're really terms of honor. Right? So Ish could be understood as my Lord, and Isha could be understood as my lady. Isn't that beautiful? See, it's, it's not until after the fall that things begin to change that they sort of lose some of the shine on that marriage. And, and suddenly now Ish just becomes Adam or Adam, which means man. And then he names Isha to be Eve, which means mother. So they go from Ish and Isha, my lord and my lady, to the man and the mother. Again, some of the shine seems to be be lost on that. And we see some of that shine being lost in often a lot of marriages. So in the spirit of putting some shine back in your marriages, guys, I want you to turn to your bride, turn to your wife, and say, hello, my lady. And ladies, turn to your husbands and say, hello, my lord. <laughs> but I want to go back in history, right? To back when they were Ish and Isha. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we read this, that that the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. The word there for formed literally means to squeeze into shape. The best illustration I can give you is, is like packing a snowball. Or some might think more appropriately, packing a meatball when it comes to describing a man. But nonetheless, it signifies that man is a rather simple creation. And all the ladies said, amen, right? Beautifully simple, but that's basically what we are. And he creates him in verse 7 and then verse 8. God then plants this garden of Eden. Eden literally means paradise. And and he creates his garden of paradise, and he puts man in there, he puts Ish in there, with the responsibility to care for it. And and he does this by giving giving Ish, giving man, this authority over the garden. And I say that because we're going to see later on that, that God is the one who gives authority, but he's also not afraid of authority. That authority is important and it's necessary we'll talk about that in in more, more weeks as we go on. But now as things begin to settle in the garden and and Adam sort of, you know, gets comfortable in there, God looks on Adam and, and he says in verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Ladies, that's talking about you. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, doesn't, doesn't part of you get excited when you read that phrase, suitable helper? Isn't that awe-inspiring? King James has help meat. Is that better or is that worse? Doesn't sound very good, right? The, the Hebrew, though, is ezer-neged. And, and really, there's great glory to this term, if we understand it. So these two terms, ezer-neged, the first term, ezer simply means helper. So it is an appropriate term when we call it a helper suitable. But this helper term, though, it describes later on, describes the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to see that, ladies, you you are in good company here when you're being called a helper. So clearly, it's not meant to be a term of insignificance, a term of weakness, or an inferior term. It's one of great glory. But the other part there, neged, literally means corresponding to. And I think that's an interesting way of putting it, right? And that's why they have a suitable part, the suitable helper. But this corresponding to, this idea that it's it's different from Adam, but nonetheless equal. And so really when I think about this, is this this ezer neged is really a teammate. Someone who is, is different but equal. And I think that's really important for us to understand that it's okay to be different than equal. Let me give you an illustration. In, in our world, you might have money on one side and a gold bar on the other side. And based on the, the current rates and trading, they are equal to each other. I might have $1,000 of, of, of cash and a $1,000 gold bar and they're equal to one another. But are they the same? No, they're two very different entities. And that's, that's what God's doing with mankind. In Genesis 1, and 27, it says, God made man male and female. And so there's the, the male man, not the first career, the male version of man, and there's the female version of man, and he made them both in his image. And so together we see these two people who are completely equal, but not the same. And that's okay. All the guys said, "You don't sound convinced." Take a look at your brides. All the guys said, "Oh my goodness, you got you need more coffee." We'll come back to that later. All right. Now it's interesting here. So he says it's not good for man to be alone, right? I need to make this Ezer Neged, this teammate, this person who's equal but different. Some would say complementary to 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 Adam. So what does he do next? What do you think? You would think he would go make make Isha, but he doesn't do that. The very next thing he does, he starts making animals. So I kind of picture it this way. God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for you to be alone. Let's make some rhinos. So he, he makes a male rhino and a female rhino and he, he brings these two animals to Adam and he says, what do you want to call them? And he calls them rhinos. And he says, great, great. Let's make something else. And he, and he makes a male version, and a female version. He brings the animals to Adam goes, what do you want to call them? Let's call them lions. And then he, then he makes the male animal and a female animal. And he says, what do you want to call them? Let's call them giraffes. And and so he's constantly making these two animals. And and I think what he's doing here is he's basically trying to give Adam an object lesson. And I believe Adam, being smarter than the average guy today, probably clued in faster going, one, two, one, two, one, two, one. Where's my two? Where's the one like me? And so what God was doing is he was showing to Adam his need. He was showing to Adam what he required. And finally, when he's made all these animals, now he goes and he puts Adam to sleep and he removes a rib. He removes a piece from Adam. And it says in verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, remember when we said that God formed Adam, it was a simple creation, right? It was just squeezed into shape like making a snowball. But the word he uses here, translated as fashioned, is a far more complex term. It's it's really this idea to design and to build. And and there is a beauty to to the complexity and the creation of women. And all the men said, you're getting better. And so he creates this beautifully complex creation And he brings her to Adam. And Ish meets Isha for the very first time. And no, Adam did not say, whoa, man, and hence her name. That's That's not where it came from. But what he does say is significant. It really is significant. This is what he says in verse 23. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Ladies, doesn't that just cause us, you know, just a tingle to run up your spine? Don't you get a little excited hearing that? bone on my bone, flesh on my flesh? Isn't that romantic? Isn't that beautiful? I don't think so either. I, I maybe it rhymed in the original language. I'm not sure, but there's something really beautiful about it. I, I don't think you'll ever see it on a Valentine's Day card, but um but really, what it is, is it's Adam making a declaration of acceptance. Look what he's saying. He's, he's looking at her and he says, she's of me. She's like me. And I accept her. I embrace her. And, and she, she's beautiful and I want her. And she's the one that matches me. She's the perfect fit for me. So it goes on to say in verse 24 and 25, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. I always think that's the goal of every marriage, this idea of being naked and unashamed. And I don't just mean physically, although that's all good and everything, but, but much more than that. To be able to be naked in your soul. and To be naked in your heart to the other person. And and completely vulnerable. Where you could be fully known. Everything about you. And not be loved less, but be loved more. That, That your fears and your insecurities. The things that you don't like about yourself. And the perceived flaws and shortcomings. The mistakes. The things you've been through. All of that is known by someone. And they say, but I still choose you. I still love you. And that's, that's really what this idea of this marriage was, was Adam and Eve knew each other perfectly. There's nothing to hide behind. And there was no need to because there was no shame. But what's interesting is, is it says, for this reason. And yet the reason isn't entirely clear, I'd argue, in the Genesis passage. But, but I think in Ephesians 5, we're going to see it. Because, see, Paul actually quotes that verse of for this reason in this passage, as we'll see. But the context here is in terms of Adam, or husband, loving your wife. And you see, the reality is what God's done is he set us up to, to give love before we are to receive love from another person. Let me, let me illustrate it to you this way. If I gave you $10 million, would that be a good thing? Yes, it would. It's okay. You can say yes to that one. I I had one person say no. And I thought, you don't understand money. Money's not wrong. Money's not evil. What is evil? The love of money, right? So if I gave you $10 million, there's a lot of good you could do potentially with $10 million. So it's a good thing if I gave you $10 million. But there's one catch. There's one problem with it. You're not allowed to spend it. You're not allowed to invest it. You're not even allowed to give it away. All it can do is just sit in a big pile right in, the, right in front of your in your living room. How much value is this $10 million now? It's worthless. It needs to be used. Well, think about it. How much love did Adam have? How much love did Ish have before his Isha, his lady, showed up? He had an infinite amount of love. Because he had God's love, but he had no one to give and offer that love to, not one like him. It was not He couldn't offer that love to the rhinos, to the lions, to the giraffes, to the elephants. They weren't designed for it. He needed one like him to give that love to. And so along comes Isha, his lady, someone that he could offer love to primarily and then receive love back. You see, that's what's so beautiful with this marriage relationship is it becomes a place where you have another person that you can share love with, where this love flows back and forth. And that sets us up now to come back to our passage in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 5, 21 and 22, Paul writes, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I recognize that this word submission or be subject, that that is causes all kinds of, of baggage probably to be tripped up and overturned in people's minds. And so we want to begin to address really what is Paul trying to say here. And I, I included verses 21 and 22 because some people try to separate those two verses. That verse 21, they say, is really just Paul summarizing what he was saying earlier about be being filled in the Holy Spirit and that we're to submit one to another. But now verse 22 is a new paragraph, a new topic, and he's only talking about marriages and and it's wives now, be subject to your husbands. But the problem is you can't separate 21 and 22. And I say that because in verse 22, there is no be subject if you if you look at the Greek, if you look at the, the, the actual writing that Paul wrote, all he says is wives to your husbands as to the Lord. See, what he's doing is he's borrowing from verse 21. That idea of, of be subject is actually coming from verse 21 into verse 22. And so really what I wanted to see is to understand verse 22, we got to start in verse 21. And, and in verse 21, what Paul's teaching us is that there's a mutual submission. That there's a submission going on between husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands. And he's going to explain what that's going to look like. But, But I make that point because let's pause and acknowledge how wives have been beaten up by this passage. That wives have been told over and over and over again, you need to submit, you need to submit, you need to submit. And that is not the point of this passage. It is not for husbands to demand that submission from their wives. In fact, what's interesting here is in these 11 verses, these first three verses are aimed at the wife. And I I would even argue that, that one of those verses is aimed more towards the man than the woman. But the next eight verses in this passage is aimed more at the man than the wife. What does that tell you? Tells me that God's trying to, to hammer home a message to husbands more than he is to wives. And so I, I don't want us to come into this passage and think that we're going to beat anyone up. Instead, what we want to understand is what is God's intention for this marriage? Now, the word submit here in Greek is the word hippotasso. And, and let's start with what it doesn't mean, and particularly what it doesn't mean towards women because I think that's where they've been beat up by, right? So number one, it doesn't mean that woman needs to be quiet, that she loses her voice and that her opinion doesn't matter. It's unimportant. That's not what it means. It also doesn't mean obey. It's a very different word, right? So it's not, it's not subjecting a woman to be as a slave to her husband who's the master. It doesn't mean that women get to be treated like property or second-class citizens, doesn't mean that her her needs are somehow secondary to that of the man. But it also doesn't mean that women need to go back to the way it was in the 50s, right? Where father knows best and and we all live like the cleavers. and, And that means, you know, men go off to work and women stay home and they're caring for the family and so forth. Because understand there's no right way to do it. For some families, it works for the wife to stay home while the man goes and he he earns a living outside the home. But please understand, both are working. And then in other families, it makes sense for both to go out and work outside the home. And then there's other families where the wife goes and makes a living outside the home and the man works from home. There's no one right way to do it. And that's, again, speaking on that topic of unity that Robin mentioned earlier, we get to have that unity where we're not trying to force someone into our own mold. So it works for your family, maybe different than my family, maybe different from another family. And let us be willing to show acceptance towards that. Because for too often, and particularly women have borne, borne this brunt, where they're looked down upon if they're not doing what others think they should be doing. And I, and I think often of a passage in Romans 14 where Paul says, who are you to judge a servant of another? It's not our place to judge. It's not our place to look down upon. They are free to do what they want to do. But, but please understand, just because we've misunderstood this word of, of submission, it doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and I think that's what's really important is because some what they've done is they basically said, well, that was a cultural passage. That was, that was based on the, the time and the era. But because things have changed, we can dismiss that passage. But the problem with that is throughout this passage and other passages as well, Paul keeps repeatedly grounding his teaching in what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, with Ish and Isha. Meaning it's, it's bigger than culture. It's what God intended, what God designed for marriage. And if we reject this whole idea of submission, what we're doing is, even though it's well-intended, we're rejecting God's counsel, and we think we know better than him. So let's let's understand then what hypotasso really means. What does it really mean to submit? And, And really what the word means is it's to willingly yield and place yourself under another. So it's not something that's forced. It's not something that's that's you know pressured upon someone else. What I, what I think is really beautiful is in, in the Greek here, Paul uses the middle tense on the verb. So what does middle tense mean? Well, there's an active verb. And, and the active verb would be uh, Ross hits Robin. Don't ask why. Long history. Something about Ottawa Senators last time. Anyway, so that would be the active. Ross hits Robin. Ross does the work. Active. But then there's Robin hit by Ross. That's the passive. Robin didn't do anything other than the senator's thing, but he didn't really do anything to be hit. But then there's the middle, which would be Robin hits himself. We're going to get him some help for that. But but nonetheless, it's something you're doing to yourself. And so what we see here in this idea that that submission isn't something that, that I do to joy or joy does to me, It's what I do to myself and what she does to herself. Meaning that we willingly subject ourselves. We willingly place ourselves under someone else. And basically what it is, it's it's a way to love and serve one another. And so what Paul's going to go on to say in this passage essentially is, is wives, you're going to submit to your husbands by respecting them by honoring them, by by acknowledging the authority that God's given them as head. And guys, husbands, you're going to submit to your wives by loving them, by loving them, by laying down your life the same way that Christ laid down his life for the church. And so you see these, these two people that aren't trying to stand above one another, but they're willing to serve each other by submitting to each other. And I think this is really important because it's redemptive. Remember, what what God's doing is in redemption here, he's redeeming. He's putting things back together where the fall has torn it apart. And he's starting within ourselves as individuals. We've gotten the first fruits of the Spirit. We've been restored as a person, as an individual. And now he's beginning to restore relationships. He's doing that within the church, but he's doing it within families. He's doing it within marriages. And that idea here, again, is one of mutual submission towards one another. And and notice what he says in the passage here, that we're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, please understand, that's not a threat. It's not God saying, if you don't submit to one another, I'm out to get you. That idea of of the fear of God is really one of reverence and awe. It's out of respect to him. And so this idea of mutual submission that I offer to my spouse or you offer to your spouse is ultimately one where I'm trusting God, where I'm saying, God, I trust that you know what you're doing. I trust that your wisdom and your counsel, and even though my spouse may not deserve it, you've asked me to do this, and that's my job. That's my role. And so my marching orders are to submit myself to my wife, to joy, each and every day. It doesn't matter what she's done or not done. My job is to submit to her. And and likewise her job is to submit to me. And and I realize, and, and really as a husband, when you recognize that, when you realize the gift that that your wife, or even as a husband, gives to your wife in that submission, that that serving, that offering yourself to the other person, you begin to see what a what a beautiful gift it really is one that we're not to take lightly one that we're not to abuse and to neglect so we're going to spend now these these next few weeks unpacking that more understanding more about what this the the different roles within a marriage between a husband and a wife between respecting and loving and and, and even how do we how do we restore a marriage that's been broken, where trust has fallen apart? We're going to begin to unpack all of that in these in these weeks ahead, but we're going to stop here for today because each of those topics needs time. It needs us time to really unpack those things and to even approach some of those verses that have been used to hurt people in so many different ways. But, but I have a question I want you guys to discuss. Uh, throughout this week, and and maybe, guys, this is an opportunity for you to, to be the ones to take the lead on, to take on that that role of of being the husband, of being the head, and initiate a conversation. And I know it's a scary conversation, because anytime you have these kind of conversations, you are opening yourself up to being vulnerable. You're opening yourself up to criticism, and you're opening yourself up to being hurt. But But there's a question I want you to ask your spouse. What kind of a marriage do you want? In that spirit of being intentional and that spirit of, 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 of going into the garden and, and not just letting the seeds fall where they may and just grow up and letting the weeds you know, happen, but being intentional in the garden and, and weeding those things that aren't good and making sure what you want planted is where it's planted. Designing the marriage you want. Because the framework of it's going to be the same in all healthy marriages but there's a a uniqueness to your marriage. And so what do you want your marriage to look like? What what kind of changes would you like to see happen? Because again, no marriage is perfect. They're constantly changing. And I would invite you to have that conversation with your wife. And, And ladies, recognize that when that guy asks that question, that he is being vulnerable and he's risking so much. And go easy, go gentle. Speak truth, but in love. And have that back and forth and begin to dream. Begin to look at that this conversation is not one to attack the other person, but it's an invitation to something even greater. Because I guarantee you, both of you are desiring something greater than what you currently have. And that's good. And that's healthy. Let's pray. Father, we're just beginning this, this topic on marriage and, and I know it's been an, an area that the enemy has attacked because to destroy a family begins to have a ripple effect in, in societies in so many different ways. And we want to hear from you and what you think marriage ought to look like, how you've designed it because ultimately, God, you're the only expert. You're the only one qualified to speak on it. But we need to listen. We need to be willing to subject ourselves to our spouse as you've designed it, as you've intended it. And in doing so, we get to create, to be part of creating the marriage that you you want for us to have. And so I pray that each of us would be bold enough to ask that question and receive it in a spirit of constructive criticism being grounded and rooted who we are in you, that we're able to hear that there's things that we can improve. There's things that we could do better and do differently, recognizing that those things don't define who we are. But I pray, Father, over these next few weeks that we would hear from your Spirit and experience the freedom and the beauty and the joy of being naked and unashamed in our spouse. In your name we pray. Amen.